Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 10, continuing to make our way through the book of 1 Samuel. Your bulletin says we're only going to go through verse 16, which is what was supposed to be in there. But we're going to do all of chapter 10. It just seems that it all goes together, and I think we need to look at all of it at one time. We are going to take time, as we do every week, to read the full passage. We want to hear from God's Word. And so I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 10 for us, and then we will pause and take a moment to pray and ask for the Lord's help. So 1 Samuel chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be his prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And the men of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. 
And Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. And they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for every word of Scripture. Father, what a privilege it is to be able to be here under the truth of your word, hearing from you. Father, we know that that is a precious gift bought by the blood of Jesus on the cross. Every good thing that has come to us this day, this week, has been purchased by Jesus because, Father, we confess that we deserve only your wrath and your condemnation. But we stand this morning, Father, in the confidence of the finished work of Christ. And we are filled with gratitude that you have sent your spirit to dwell in us, to awaken us to the glories of who you are and to the truth of your word. And so, Father, we plead with you as we do every single week that you would be at work in us for the glory of your name by the power of your spirit through the truth of your word. Father, we need to hear from 1 Samuel chapter 10 this morning. Father, I pray that we would be reminded of your long-suffering, of your patience with us, how you are merciful even to a people who don't deserve it. And so, Father, I pray that your word this morning would help us to rest in your mercy and in your grace and in the work of Jesus in our place. So, Father, I pray that you would guide my words this morning. Allow me to speak only what is true of you, what is true of your word. Pray that you would lead us into all truth for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in in many ways, it can be quite confusing, I think, to track with what God is doing in this section of 1 Samuel, in chapters 8 through 10. Because even though chapter 8 was way before Christmas, (laughs) just as a reminder, what we saw in chapter 8 is God's people demanding that God give them a king so that they can be like all the nations around them. And God makes clear that their motive to have a king was a sinful motive. It was a wrong motive. They, they should not have asked for a king so that they could be like all the nations. They wanted a king, chapter 8, verse 5, and chapter 8, verse 20 tells us, so that that king could go out and fight their battles for them. But of course, God is the one who had fought their battles for them. And so God tells Samuel in chapter 8, verse 7, that they are not rejecting Samuel. They're rejecting God as their king with such a faithless request. Yet God gives Samuel permission to grant the request of the people. He says it's wicked, it's evil. Their motive for asking is not right, but give them the king that they're asking for. 
Now, he makes clear, God makes clear that their motive for asking was wrong, but yet we know that God desired to establish a monarchy, to establish a kingship in Israel. Moses said as such in Deuteronomy chapter 17, he he said, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set his king over you. We see the promises throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, where there would be a king, a ruler who would come from the tribe of Judah. It was always God's intention. And yet the people sinfully asked for a king And yet, in spite of their sinful asking, he still gave it to them. It's not the concept of kingship. It's why they wanted a king to start with. But yet, God also knows the sinfulness of the human heart. And so he says to Samuel, look, warn them about what a king is going to be like. If they get a king, tell them what it's going to be like. And so Samuel in chapter 8, verses 11 through 18, gives them a detailed recounting of what it's going to be like when you have a king. He's going to take from you and take from you. He's going to take your sons for the army. He's going to take your daughters to work in the palace. He's going to take your crops and he's going to tax your money. He's going to take and he's going to take and he's going to take. And the people hear the warning, and it falls on deaf ears, and they stiffen their necks in rebellion, and they still say, that's okay, we want a king. And so again, again, God says to Samuel, then give them what they're asking for. Now, the question is, what does God do at that point? This is the key thing I want us to see as we head into chapter 10 this morning. What does God do at that point? He says, look, they're sinful to ask for it. Give it to them anyway, but warn them first. Maybe they'll change their mind. Samuel warns them. They don't change their mind. They say, yeah, give us the king. We want a king instead of leaning on you to go out and win our battle. So what does God do? The temptation is to think, well, God responds the way we would respond in a situation like that, right? How would we respond in a situation like that? We would do this. I've tried to warn you. You want a king? Take it. I'm done with you. And we cross our arms and we sit back and watch the disaster unfold. But it's astonishing that that's not what he does. God defies our expectations. And it's why, by the way, we need to read and be familiar with the Old Testament. Because sometimes we formulate in our minds what God is like. And then we read the Bible and we realize he's not at all like we think he would be. Because you hear cliches like the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is a God of patience. But if you read the Old Testament, I promise you, you will be blown away by how often God does not give people what they deserve. Now, he certainly exercises his wrath at times in the Old Testament. There is no denying that. But it is time after time after time after time that he is long-suffering and he is patient. And he does not give people the wrath and the condemnation that they fully deserve. And these chapters in 1 Samuel are just one example of that, because what did we just learn in chapter 9 about last week, about how God responded to this sinful desire for a king? He didn't step back. He didn't say, let it be your way. No, what did he do? He orchestrated events to bring his chosen man to his chosen prophet so that he could be anointed as king. And he worked all kinds of ways. He made donkeys get lost and they go wander off and find him just so that they can meet Samuel so that Saul can be anointed as king. No, God did not step back. He stepped forward and he was actively involved in bringing the right man to them at the right time to be anointed by Samuel. He says, so that they could be freed from the oppression of the Philistines. He said, I've heard their cry and I'm going to raise up a king to rescue them. This is the grace and mercy of God on display in 1 Samuel chapters 8 
and 9 and 10. That's what I want to be sure we see. God doesn't back away from his people with disgust and indifference when they sin in this situation. No, he keeps his eye on them and he works on their behalf, even when they don't even know he's at work by making donkeys get lost. And we're going to see that pattern continue this morning in chapter 10. We're going to see how God continues to provide for his people by preparing a king for his kingdom. Remember, God is working for his good purposes. Chapter 9, verse 16, God said to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. He takes a wicked and rebellious people who are wrong to ask for a king, and he shows them grace. And he says, I'm going to free them from the oppression of the Philistines through this king they sinfully asked for. So let's see him at work among his people in the days of Samuel. And we're going to be reminded that God, as we see this, that God continues to pour out that same mercy and grace on an undeserving people today, a people like you and a people like me. So let's look at the three ways that God graciously, graciously provides a king for his kingdom. First, God gives strength to the humble. He gives strength to the humble. Secondly, he shows grace to the rebellious. He shows grace to the rebellious. And then finally, we will see that God establishes authority over his people. So God gives strength to the humble. Look with me at verses 1 through 16. So verse 1 of chapter 10, it begins with Samuel privately anointing Saul to be the leader of God's people. You see that in verse 1, he took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? He tells him that he's going to reign over his people, that he's going to save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Can you imagine how those words must have landed on Saul, a young man who just a few days ago was wandering around in the wilderness on a task to find some lost donkeys and had no bread left and was down to their last quarter of a shekel of money. And now all of a sudden, Samuel is anointing him to be king. He must certainly be confused. Here he is with with oil dripping down his face, being told that he will be the one to reign over Israel and defeat God's enemies. It was just a few verses ago that Saul was overwhelmed with all that Samuel was saying at the end of chapter 9 because Saul fully recognized that he's a nobody. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. It's the smallest tribe of all the tribes. And he's from the smallest clan, the smallest family of all the families of the smallest tribe. And not only was it the smallest tribe historically, but it was even smaller because at the end of the book of Judges, the, the tribe of Benjamin is wiped out because they commit a grievous sin. And so all the 11 other tribes gather together. They're, they're called together anyway to go and attack the tribe of Benjamin. And the end of Judges tells us that 25,000 of them are struck down of an already small tribe. So this is the tribe that Saul comes from. It's small. It's nothing. And so he's confused. But yet, yet God is at work and this young man from this small tribe. So here's the question. What does God do? How does God strengthen and prepare for kingship this humble, relatively clueless, unprepared young man to lead God's people and to defeat God's enemies? Well, first, as verse 1 tells us, he's going to give him clear signs that this is God at work. 
You see that at the end of verse 1? He says, this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. So God in his grace through Samuel says to Saul, look, I'm going to give you evidence that this is coming directly from God. I'm going to give you a sign that these words are God's words. And then he commences to give lots of details about what is going to be happening to Saul as he heads back home. Now, if we didn't have this information, if we weren't told what's going to happen to Saul, it would seem like just another random series of events. But because Samuel tells him beforehand what's going to happen, it is a sign from God that this anointing is from God himself. So look at what he tells him there beginning in verse 2. When you depart from me today, you're going to meet two men by Rachel's tomb. So a specific number of men in a specific place. And they're going to say something specific to you. The donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what about my son? So Samuel says, look, you're going to go. And when you get in this place, two men are going to come here and they're going to say these exact words to you. Not only that, but when you you keep walking, verse 3, you're going to go on farther. You're going to come to the Oak of Tabor, an exact place. When you get to that place, there are going to be three men specifically Three men going up to God at Bethel. They're going to meet you there. One's going to carry three young goats. One's going to be carrying three loaves of bread. And another's going to carry a skin of wine. And they're going to greet you. And they're going to give you two loaves of bread. Not one loaf of bread, not three loaves of bread. They're going to give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. Now, this is just random information. (laughs) It doesn't even repeat it. Later, it just says everything Samuel said was going to happen, happened. Right? There's nothing significant about three loaves and three goats. It's just God's way of saying, I'm in control. These are my words. I mean, think about all that could go wrong about a guy getting three loaves of bread to that place at that time. Right? If you've ever been around someone baking bread, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Right? He very easily could have ruined one batch of it and had two loaves of bread. Like God is even sovereign over the baking of bread. He's sovereign over the bird not swooping down and taking it out of his hand. He's sovereign over the guy not tripping it and losing it off the cliff or whatever it may be, right? He made it with three loaves of bread. And you think, well, that's so silly and insignificant, but it's not. He is sovereign over our lives and can even guarantee that a man makes it to the oak of Tabor with three loaves of bread and even carrying three young goats. I don't know how you do that, by the way. (laughs) right? I guess one on your shoulders, one in each hand, right? They don't run off. They don't like, they make it just fine. God is sovereign over all of this in order, right? In order, verse one tells us to prove to Saul that what Samuel said to him is from God. And then the final sign that he has given is in verse five. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. Remember the Philistines who were oppressing God's people and occupying their land. You're going to come there where there's a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you'll meet a group of prophets. They're going to come down playing their instruments. And when that happens, verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. The phrase, the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you is significant. This exact same phrase is used in Judges, referring to Samson. Three different times, 
that phrase is used talking about Samson. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson, and he, another time, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson. Each of those times that that happens, it's when the Lord is giving Samson strength for a particular task at hand. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him, and he takes the jawbone of the donkey, and he wipes out all the, the, right, the thousand men, right? It's when the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him, he gives him strength. And in fact, later, we'll see next week in chapter 11, verse 6, when it is time for Saul to go to battle. Chapter 11, verse 6, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled, and he got ready to go to battle. So it seems that the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon a man is preparing a man to lead and is giving a man strength for the task at hand. It's not the same way in which the Spirit comes to us, right? The Spirit comes to dwell in us through the finished work of Christ on the cross and permanently indwells us. That's not what's happening to Saul here, right? This is a temporary coming, which is why it's done multiple times. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Saul in chapter 10. He rushes upon him again in chapter 11. In Samson, it happens to him three different times. So this is a particular coming of the Spirit in a way that gives strength for a particular task or a particular role, And when that happens, it says in verse 6 that he turned into another man. Again, this isn't speaking of the new covenant, new creation that happens to us in Christ. It's just saying that Saul is made ready by the power of the Spirit. He is made ready. He becomes another man ready to lead his people. This is what God is doing on behalf of his people. Remember, this is all a gift of God's grace that God would prepare a man, even a man who was sinfully asked for, to come and to lead his people to rescue them from the oppression of the Philistines. And of course, chapter 10 goes on in verses 9 through 13, and we're told that everything Samuel said would come to pass comes to pass. So apparently, as Saul was going, he he meets the people at Rachel's tomb, and they tell him, you know, your father's worried about you. The donkeys have been found. He goes to the oaks, Oak of Tabor and there's the three guys there and they got three loaves of bread and they got three young goats and they have the skin of wine and they specifically give him two of the loaves. So all of that happens. And then they come to Gibeah, verse 10, and there's a group of prophets who meet him there. And in fact, what Samuel said, what happened, happens. The Spirit of God rushes upon him and he prophesies among them and people are confused. Now, It's important to remember because we have insight into the story that the people in the story don't have. The only people on planet earth who know that Saul is the next king at this point in the story is Samuel and Saul. Those are the only human beings who know this is going on. Because at the end of verse 9, remember Samuel told Saul's servant, go on ahead of us, I need to talk to Saul. They're the only two people who know it. And so when this happens, all of a sudden, this kid from Benjamin, right, all of a sudden is with the prophets, and he's prophesying, and people are confused. What is going on with Saul, the son of Kish? And yet it's just God's work in his life demonstrating to people what eventually they will find out, that he's a man being prepared to lead his people and to free them from the Philistines. So finally, he gets close to his hometown in verse 14, and he sees his uncle, and his uncle says, where did you go? And Saul, I think it's almost sarcastic, like, you know where I've been. (laughs) Like, I went to seek the donkeys. That's, we know what happened here. That's where I've been. And finally, went to Samuel. And so he says, well, what, what does Samuel say to you, right? It's a big deal if you get to talk to Samuel, if you're talking to a prophet. But Saul's not, not ready. Remember, nobody else knew about this. So if Saul in that moment would have said, Let me tell you what Samuel said. His uncle wouldn't have believed him anyway, right? And so he just keeps it to himself about the matter of the kingdom at the end of verse 16 in which Samuel had spoken. He did not tell him anything. 
It seems that Saul is just not quite ready to step out and lead and defeat the Philistines. But God has been at work equipping him, strengthening him for the task at hand. And the reason this is important, as I said at the beginning, we need to see this as a gracious gift from God to his people. Because when the people sinfully asked for a king, they were wrong. They were sinful. They were rebellious to have the motive they had to ask for a king. And then God says, Samuel, warn them. Warn them what it's going to be like. I'm in my grace, I'm going to warn them. And they ignore the warning and they say, no, still, we want a king to go out before us and fight our battles for us. And again, as I said, God says to Samuel, well, then give them their king. But is it not astonishing that God doesn't give up on his people at that point? Instead, he plucks Saul from the little tiny tribe of Benjamin, leads into Samuel where he's anointed. And not only that, he gives him assurance that what Samuel has said is true through these random signs that could only be from God. And he sends his own spirit and rushes his spirit upon Saul to give him strength. He allows him to prophesy, to give physical outward evidence that that's what's happened in Saul's life. God didn't have to do any of that for his people. They certainly didn't deserve it. But this is who God is, brothers and sisters. He is a gracious, patient, long-suffering God. And even when a people deserve to be wiped out, he keeps pursuing them. This is just one way that we're reminded by the way, that that leaders prepared by God's providential hand are a gift to God's people. And we're reminded that when God calls someone to a task, he will give them what they need for the task he has called them to. Now, let me be clear. What they may want for the task may not be what they need for the task, but he will give them what they need for their good and for the good of his people. This is what God does. He graciously and providentially strengthen humble Saul to prepare him to lead his people. But now, now God, now Samuel is ready to take it public. What has been private must now be a public anointing. But as the public anointing comes in verses 17 through 24, it comes with a strong, clear rebuke from Samuel. So let's look secondly at how God shows grace to the rebellious. Look with me beginning in verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. So he's bringing the public together. And he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. This is a clear rebuke. This is Samuel saying to God's people, you were wrong to ask for a king. God is the one who is more than capable of fighting your battles for you. He rescued you from Egypt in a powerful way, sending the 10 plagues, opening up the Red Sea, making it crash back down on Pharaoh's army. He is able to take care of the kingdoms that have oppressed you. You did not need to ask for a king to do those things. And today you have rejected your God. What a powerful, stern, clear rebuke that comes from Samuel. Now remember, nobody knows what's going on. Samuel gives that rebuke, and the next thing he says, Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Now if you're familiar with some of the stories from the Bible, 
as they would have been, they were trembling and afraid because the last time something like this happened was in the days of Joshua. And Achan had sinfully taken the devoted things from Jericho. And because of that, they were not able to defeat Ai. And and Achan had taken these devoted things and God announced their sin in the camp because Achan had taken these things and hidden them in their tent, things God has specifically told them not to take. And so Joshua gathers the people up because there's going to be condemnation and judgment on whoever brought the sin into the camp that caused their defeat in the battle of Ai. And they gathered the people by their tribes and by their thousands. And by lot, they choose a tribe, they choose a family, and it gets narrowed down to Achan. He's the sinner. He's the one who stole the devoted things. And he is then executed by stoning. So here's a rebuke. He says that they've rejected God. Now gather up your tribes. And he draws the first lot. And it goes to the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Now, I think the tribe of Benjamin was terrified. Remember, nobody knows he's getting ready to anoint a king. I think they all think judgment is coming. And then from the tribe of Benjamin, he brought them nearby clans. And from that tribe, the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And then the final Lot comes, and it is Saul, the son of Kish, taken by Lot. Lots is a random way of choosing. It would be like us rolling dice or drawing straws. But God is sovereign over the drawing of the lots, and it lands on Saul. Now, we're told that Saul cannot be found when they looked for him. So they inquired of the Lord, where is Saul? Is there somebody else? What's going on? We don't understand what's happening. Apparently, Saul had taken notes from the donkeys about how to hide and (laughs) had taken off and He was hidden among the baggage. And so God says in verse 22, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Now think about this for a moment. What God says, he says he has hidden himself. It's not that Saul wasn't aware this was going on. It's not that he wandered off. No, he intentionally went and hid himself. It was an intentional action that Saul took to get away and to hide himself. But of course, there is nothing hidden from God's sight. He knew exactly where Saul was, and he tells them where he is. Now, why did Saul hide? Ultimately, we don't know. We are not told. But I think there are two reasonable possibilities, and it could have been a combination of both. One possibility, as I just said, is that he's simply terrified, right? I know he's just been anointed as king in private, but maybe he thinks, well, the is going to anoint me king so that I can be executed on behalf of everybody, I mean, it's a very possible conclusion if he was familiar at all with what happened to Achan. It wouldn't have been an unreasonable thing for Saul to think. And so he's, the lots are drawing down. It's me. I'm out of here, right? And he goes and hides in the baggage. That's possible. The second possible reason is that he just knows that the kingship is about to be, be made public and he's not ready for it. That's an overwhelming responsibility. And here it is upon him. And he doesn't think he's worthy of it. He doesn't think he's capable of it. And so he goes and he hides. He just wants to get away from the situation. Or perhaps it's a combination of both things. He's not ready, and he thinks somewhere in the back of his mind, this could be really bad news. But for whatever reason, Saul hides, but God knows exactly where Saul is hidden. And when they bring him out, they see his impressive stature. And Samuel says in verse 24, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And the people shouted, long live the king. Now, I think when 
when Samuel says in verse 24, there is none like him among all the people. I think he is certainly referring probably some to his physical stature, but I think at this point it's more than that. I think he is saying, look, there's none like him among all the people. Like God has prepared him for this moment. He has assured him through the definitive signs that were given in chapter 10. He has caused the spirit to rush upon him. He has caused him to prophesy. He has strengthened him and prepared him for this very moment and this very day. There is none like him among all the people. He is ready to be at work on your behalf for God in order to rescue you from the oppression of the Philistines. What an amazing turn of events this is. What starts in verse 17 is a rebuke and a condemnation of the people for asking for a king, right? It was wrong of them. And what should have come is exactly what happened to Achan. That's what should have come. That's what the people deserved. But instead of giving them what they deserved, he gave them a king to defeat their enemies. And this is where reading the Bible gives us patterns to understand the gospel. Because this is exactly what God has done for you and me. He sent a king, the divine eternal son of God on earth. And what we deserved is for that king to come and to destroy us and to condemn us. But instead he came to rescue us. And he came to lay down his life on the cross to take the wrath and condemnation we deserved on himself to deliver us from the domain of darkness and transfer us to his kingdom. God is about giving people what they don't deserve through his grace and mercy. It's what he did in 1 Samuel chapter 10. It's what he did for us through the blood of the cross. Now there will come a day, right? We must speak truthfully. There will come a day when the King Jesus will come to destroy all of his enemies. That day will come. And all those who have not trusted in Christ and fled to the cross for redemption and rescue will stand before Jesus as his enemies, and he will condemn them. He will destroy them. They will be cast into hell for all eternity. But those who have taken refuge in the blood of the cross will be safe on the day of judgment. All those who trust in the king who came to rescue will be rescued. What a gracious merciful, long-suffering God we serve. The anointing of Saul after the rebuke from Samuel shows us God's patience with his people and his commitment to his people, even when they've turned against him, because God is a promise-keeping God. And he promised that that Savior, that King Jesus who would come, would come from the tribe of Judah, would come from his people. And so he preserved them and kept them and gave them a king to free them from their enemies. And finally, what I want us to see is that when God did this, when God established his throne in Israel, he did not relinquish his rule. God didn't just hand the people over to Saul. No, he is committed to continuing to rule over and to care for his people, which is the final thing I want us to see in verses 25 and 27. Number three, that God establishes authority over his people. And that is a gift of God's grace to us, that God would establish his authority over his people. Look at verses 25 through 27. A few interesting things happen here. Verse 25, then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. What verse 25 says to us is that God provides a king, but he does not give the people simply over to the king. He says, even the king must follow the truth of my word. That king is still subject to me. This king will have specific rights. He will have specific duties of kingship. He is subservient to the sovereign king of the universe. 
and he must rule righteously according to my precepts and my commands. And it's just yet another reminder that God's not backing away as he ought to have. It's what they deserved. He should have given them over to a sinful tyrant. Instead, he gives them a king that he prepares. He gives them a king that he says will be subject to my rules to the rights and duties of kingship. And Samuel writes them down in a book and he, so that there's a record of it, so that it should not be forgotten. And he lays it up before the Lord as a testimony to all people that this king serves the sovereign king. But also notice, notice who's still in charge in verses 25 to 27. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Now, Saul's already been anointed king. He is now the king, but he's not yet ruling. And ultimately, I think what that little line says to us is that God's prophets still have a place of authority in the monarchy of Israel, that their word is still to be heeded, that the king still needs to listen to the man of God. The king still needs to hear the words of the prophet, the warnings that the prophet will give. In other words, it is the word of God that still reigns over his people. That's good news, brothers and sisters. It is good news that God's word and God's truth still reigns over his people, even when he establishes the kingship and the monarchy of Israel. And not only that, verse 26 says that God touched the hearts of some specific men, men of valor, to go with Saul. He he brings others along with Saul to to strengthen his rule as he seeks to righteously and justly rule over his people. But there were others, verse 27 says, who were worthless fellows who said, how can this man save us? Now, why does the Bible call them worthless fellows? Just think about the nature of their complaining right now. God, give us a king. Give us one. Give us one to go out and fight our battles. That's what we need. Sinful Sinful request. God in his mercy provides a king to rescue them from their enemy. He prepares the king. He leads the king to them. He causes the spirit to rush upon the king. He gives them exactly what they asked for, even though they were sinful and they're asking, and he stands the king before them. He's not good enough, God. How could he save us? Right? What, what an evil, wicked response. But how often do we respond to God that way when he gives us what we've asked for? God, that, that's not good enough for me. That's not what I asked for. That's not going to cut it, God. He called the men with that attitude worthless fellows. So even as we talked about a few weeks ago, or actually last week, let's in this new year strive by God's grace to be a people who free ourselves from grumbling and complaining and rest in what God provides for us and trust that it's exactly, that it's exactly what we need. This is a powerful mirror to hold up to our own bitter souls. But let's not, let's not join them in their bitterness. Instead, let's look at the evidence of God's grace all around us that he gives us every day when he graciously responds to our pleas for help. You see, in the end, in the end, even though they made a request that was motivated by sinful desires, God poured out his mercy, his grace, his provision on his people 
And in spite of their sin, God responded to their cries for help. They cried out, free us from the oppression of the Philistines. And even though they asked for it to be done in the wrong way, God sent them a king who would do it the right way. And he providentially led that king to Samuel. He providentially strengthened Saul and gave him a strength of resolve by giving him clear signs to say, what I've said to you is true. He sent his spirit to rush upon Saul to give him strength. And he changed him into another man so that he could lead his people. And even though the rebuke of Samuel should have been followed by the condemnation of God. Instead, it was followed by the gift of a king to be anointed to rescue his people. And then God graciously maintained his rule, established his authority over his people through the truth of his word. This is grace upon grace upon grace. This is our God. And I pray that you have seen with me in this narrative the gracious provision of God to an undeserving people. And this is a theme that you will see on repeat throughout the scriptures that comes to ultimate fulfillment in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And now we get to together here in a few moments rejoice in that gracious provision as we come together at the Lord's table, drinking the juice, representing the spilled blood of Jesus and eating of the bread, symbolizing the broken body of Christ. So let me pray for us and pray for our time together over the Lord's table. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the grace and mercy you have shown us in Jesus. We are the epitome of an undeserving people. Well, Father, I pray that we would see the testimony of your grace, the evidence of your mercy on display throughout your word, even in a place like for Samuel chapter 10. Father, you are so gracious. You did not give your people what they deserved. And we are so thankful that you do not give us what we deserve. Even though we deserve to be sent a king who would condemn us and destroy us, you sent us a king to rescue us. And so, Father, as we gather around the Lord's table this morning, I pray that we would rest in the finished work of Christ that stands in our place. And as 1 Corinthians 11 tells us, that as we do this, We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.